Hi, my name's Dr Rachel Steen and I'm a GP registrar working in Sheffield. Unfortunately, despite our best efforts, patients most in need don't get the best care. This problem is present and very real in the UK. I feel, with increasing challenges and changes in both our health and social care services, health inequality needs to be at the top of the agenda. Despite having had a keen interest in population health and preventative medicine throughout my training, I find tackling health inequalities often feels complex, with no obvious solutions. Throughout this podcast, I aim to simplify this. I'll be talking to some of the most experienced colleagues in the field, hoping to fuel interest, inspiration and further discussion around this challenging topic. Welcome to Finding Fair Health podcast. On today's episode, I'm talking to David Buck. David works in the policy team at the health think tank and charity, The King's Fund. David previously worked at the Department of Health as Deputy Director of Health Inequalities. There, he was involved in and led a number of projects, including the Independent Marmot Review and the Labour government's public service agreement target on health inequalities. David has a background on health economics and public health. At the King's Fund, he has written widely about health inequalities, politics, poverty, and more recently has been involved in the publication of their vision for population health. Having spoken to a number of people over the last year or so about tackling health inequalities, I'm always signposted to David. So congratulations, David, you're officially the go-to man on the topic of health inequalities. So welcome to the podcast, David. We're going to delve into greater depth about health inequalities, but I wanted to ask you, after that introduction, what has been your favourite part of your career so far? Thank you very much, and good to be um, talking today. First thing to say is that I think that you've talked to the wrong people if they point towards me, but (laughs) the favourite part of my career, that's a great question. I think that I've had four parts of my career each of which has a sort of particular favorite bit of it i started in york and at the center for health economics and that was a real privilege um to work with a great number of people there and the focus there was around the economics of health promotion at the time i think one of the favorite parts of my career was was a long period about 10 years working various roles in the department of health again immense privilege i feel very privileged in my career such as it is to have to have worked in the places I have done. And then latterly, it's been a great privilege to work at the King's Fund, and in particular to, I guess, learn, again, keep learning about um, about things, in particular the King's Fund, a, a much greater appreciation of local government, I think, than I did have before coming here. So each of the bits of my career have been favourite for different reasons. So I wouldn't choose one particularly, because they've all been subtly different and a, and a sense of development. Yeah, fantastic. Well, that's amazing to hear. David, what got you into all of this? I think for me personally, there is a sense of serendipity. So I happen to be in York and there is a thread there that I, my first job actually after leaving, so I did a master's degree in economics. The first job that I got, York is a lovely place to live. Uh, If anyone knows York, I really enjoyed being there. And there was the opportunity at that stage, I don't know how old I am, um, to look at the economics of uh, the end of the Cold War actually, and, and what that means for um, industry, so uh, the civil industry, what that means for the economy. And there happened to be a research institute there called the Centre for Defence Economics. But also, as many people will know, there's also an institute called the Centre for Health Economics. So I got into the Centre for Health Economics, and then the great thing about working in in, in health from 
perspective, well, from a policy perspective, is there, there's an infinite number of problems, infinite number of issues. You never get bored. Um, you can get frustrated. Um, of course you can. But there's so much to be uh, looked at to, um, to try and improve. And so that's why I've stayed in it, really. Uh, and also the sense, obviously, over time I've developed uh, an interest in public health and or the health of the public or do we call it population health? That's where we'll come on to that too. And also inequalities in health and that sense of both uh, injustice and the fact that it needn't be that way. So there's a sort of driving um, goal in a sense to try and work with others to try and tackle some of those big social issues. Mm. I'm really interested about your background in economics, thinking about how prevention and early intervention so it doesn't simply tackle the human cost of ill health. It also kind of represents good value for money yeah. um, and has the opportunity to, to um, reduce demand on public services, support economic growth. Is that something that you believe? I do believe that in principle. I think the, the, the devil is always in the details. So not all public health makes sense. Not all public health works like mm-hmm. anything. So you've got to... So at a high level, yes, I think... If you force me to say, does public health um, save lots of cash? I'd say most of it doesn't save lots of cash. So mm-hmm. if we're if we're selling public, and this is something I've written about, as you probably know, if we're selling from a health economics, but if we're selling it based on cash saving, then mm-hmm. we're like we're selling it on the wrong wrong thing. We're misselling it, and people are misbuying it. Mm-hmm. If we're saying this is a really good, cost-effective use of society's resources, then we're selling the right thing. And mm-hmm. my, my worry about the way that we use economic terms and firms like return on investment quite loosely, and I do mm-hmm. it too, so when I say we, I include myself in that, is that we have to be very clear what we mean by that. And my worry at the moment is that, or or has been, that public health is, return on investment in public health is seen as cash saving to the mm-hmm. NHS. And we know from NICE's work that 10 to 15% of public health interventions that they've assessed, and they, it's a particular type of public health intervention they've assessed, are cost-saving to the NHS. About 70%, 80% of them are really good use of resources, but they cost money. Mm. So we should be willing to pay society's resources through the NHS, through local government, through other means, for great improvements in health, and, and lots of public health interventions deliver that. But if we set the bar at everything that public health has to save the NHS money or reduce demand of the NHS, then we'll underinvest in public yeah. health and we'll probably invest in the wrong stuff. And setting ourselves up for a failure? Setting it? ourselves up for absolutely. So that's what I worry about, is that we set that bar too high or that bar is set for public health too high, then it's going to fail. But that's because mm-hmm. the bar's in the wrong place, yeah. not because it's not a good use of society's resources. Yeah, OK. okay. So I think winning that argument is really important and we all get pushed into oh crikey uh, if we do this it will save the nhs cash at some point in the future maybe and usually in year usually within 12 months and some public health interventions do do that great but that's the cherry on the cake and we sort of we focus on the cherry not the cake let's Mm. let's focus on the cake Mm. healthy cake of course (laughs) and you've written david about um about this but you your role at the moment is much bigger than that, and it's not just the economic health economics no. that you think about. Tell us a bit about what you're doing at the moment. I get yeah. So I guess I see myself as a sort of jack of all trades, master of none. So here I skate very thinly across lots of ice, 
So I do numerous things, and I guess I've been here now eight years, so I, I, I'll talk a little about what we're doing at the moment, but I guess some, some of the background of what I've been doing. I do have the um, some analytical, obviously, knowledge and capability myself, but also people... The great thing about the King's Fund, we have a very diverse range of skills, so it's great that we can call on others. So I've done quite in-depth analytical work around health behaviours and the fact that health behaviours cluster in populations, and that's intimately related to inequalities, and that's something that... Um, think tanks or others that have the luxury and the privilege that we do can actually focus on gaps so w- without being too negative you know the, the, temp- the temptation in policy and i think also in academia is always to specialize so we have world leading experts obviously across health behaviors in this country we're really fortunate um but actually all the all the health uh, alcohol use smoking diet physical activity uh it all clusters in, as, we, as you know, as a, as a GP, it all clusters in, in, in people. And actually thinking about that, and we did some analytical work when I first came here, setting how, how that is related to inequalities. And then if we just deliver separate um, interventions, we miss the fact that most people coming to see, see you haven't, aren't just obese. Uh, they also have, maybe have smoking problems or alcohol problems. And what does that mean for how we relate to people and how we design services, and also what we expect of people. You know, people are li- living, as you know, living complex lives. So I think bringing some of that into policy thinking and influencing to the extent that, that we can do at the King's Fund, I think is helpful because we, we have an immense um, privilege in that we, and we may come on to this in a bit more detail, we, are, we, we can be influential both, I think the important thing is both in, in local areas and with people on the ground, but also nationally... Um, regionally and where we work well we can bring some of those perspectives together and hopefully support and influence um, across those sort of tiers of decision making let's let's put it that way that's a terrible phrase but um, Mm -hmm. um, so I've done analytical work I've done and again as as I said earlier I've done uh, really privileged to have and by no means totally but understand and work more with local government and see the contribution of local government both through public health functions but also the roles of people directors of public health and I know you've talked to several um, uh, people on this podcast no doubt will speak more so again bringing some of the perspectives that I see back into the fund and then helping to bring some of those ideas into here beyond me because you know we are traditionally and although we change obviously over time we're quite a healthcare focused institution and I think what what maybe what I've managed to do in the last eight to nine years is to sort of like just you know to I'd say sort of not not shift the center of our gravity but broaden our base a little bit so mm-hmm. that we're more open and more reflective and more welcoming to other other ways of thinking and other contributions so I see that as part of my role in the fund mm-hmm. I also again mean that in the context of sort of thinking more about the sort of social determinants of health and what health is and health not just being about the NHS. Is that what you mean? I think that, yes. Yeah. But also I think reminding the system... The other thing is reminding the system... I know you recently talked to Chris Bentley mm. that actually the, the, the system, however we define it, has got a very short-term memory. Mm. So I think, I think the benefit of being here... And having the freedom to remind people that actually, not that it was always better in the past, but there was some great stuff, particularly policymakers, there was some great stuff that happened 10, 15 years ago. And yes, we need to refresh it, maybe need to rebadge it, give it a different label. But actually don't forget what we already know, particularly about health inequality reduction, yeah. that we know an awful lot already. 
Um, and that's not just the social determinants of health, that's also the role of the NHS. So I'm, yeah. I'm very um, keen to say that the NHS has a massive role in, inequality, in reducing inequalities mm. in health. Uh, yeah. And I know that, that there's a lot of so-called lifestyle drift and that, and, the, and that the social determinants of health or the wider ones don't get as much focus, perhaps, as they could do. But the NHS has also got a fantastic role so I'm not a I'm not in one camp or another on that I guess I guess yeah. one of my roles here and one of my roles maybe through my career because I started as, I, as you said I started as an economist but be, then became a student more strategic roles and latterly policy roles as a sort of bridger so mm. I guess if I if I'm anything I'm a, hopefully I'm a bit of a bridger between disciplines and is there anything you would say to yourself David that um let's say 10-15 years ago now in the role you're in I don't know. I might say something from now to to who I was, and that that was probably before. I think it was when I was an academic or working in an academic institution. I was at the Centre for Health Economics, and I think academics have got better at this. But I think I was quite insular, so I was very interested in the analytical side. But I wasn't as curious, or interested, or incentivized to be curious or interested by the reward structures in academia to actually get out and see what happens in the, what's happening in the real world. And for me, the real world is policy decision-making as well as what you do or what people actually do, you know, treating people or seeing people face-to-face. And I think that is changing, but it's still changing rather slowly. And I guess that's why I've ended up here, because I think when we, when we get it right, that's the sort of function that we, we, we can get right at the Kingston. We don't always get it right. Um, and there are lots of other think tanks available too, so it's not just us, clearly. Mm. So I'd say maybe back, looking back, maybe be a bit more curious, a bit more thoughtful about um, about what your what your impact is. Yeah, and do you ever... And it sounds like you obviously had quite an academic perspective and now you're coming from sort of a poli- quite policy yeah. perspective. Do you ever yearn to have a different perspective, so like a clinical perspective, for example? I think, I think the gap in my knowledge... Well, I've got many gaps in my knowledge, obviously, <laughs> but, I mean, one of the gaps is, is actually that clinical perspective and also directly working in the NHS in some mm. form. Obviously not a frontline line doctor, but in some form. So I think that is probably a perspective that I could do with... I'm fortunate in that we can call on that perspective here and, and we have, um, it's great, we have lots of trainees here, both from management side of the NHS and general practice trainees too. So we get actually quite a lot of exposure uh, and obviously we talk to and listen to clinical perspectives all the time across the fund. So given that I haven't got that, this is quite a good place to be exposed to it. But that's yeah. probably a missing bit um, definitely a missing sort of pillar in my understanding mm, mm. and but it's good to be aware of these things and be able to yeah. ask for advice from those people when you need it isn't it um so david i wanted to talk to you a little bit um about population health i got to know david on um, a course i'm doing which is the leadership for population health course and um following the recent publication of the vision for population health can you just tell me a little bit about what we hear the words population health, public health, population health management? Yes. What does this all mean to you? That's a great question. Um, so they're, they're contested words are the first thing. So I think there's a bit, not a competition, but there is a sense of seeking to understand them. To me, population health is, you could argue, is a, is a really, is a more inclusive phrase for what a really comprehensive public health approach would have been i think we've used the phrase in our publication 
I guess, for two reasons, or at least one reason, maybe two, um, is the sense that actually the public health profession is really critical to, and the expertise, the training, their role is really critical to the population's health, but it is not sufficient and there aren't enough people in public health um, and other people have different perspectives. Um, so I guess for me, it's where all of the, all of the factors, it, going back to society, all of the roles, all of the um, understandings about what improves the health of populations comes together in a population health approach. That will look different in different places. Mm -hmm. I think it has some... It should have, probably does have some core elements, but how they blend, how they come together in different contexts... Is really is really critical, but I guess our what we were trying to do with that piece of work was trying to explain it to ourselves to some extent and provide something that's useful for others. Not that says the King's Fund thinks the answers are A, B, C, and D, E, and E, and the King's Fund's got all the answers because we clearly don't. But hopefully, providing a framework for people to think about and reflect on what does population health mean in their in their places in particular, particular local level, but also we say a lot about national government, national government role. We had a strap line to that piece of work, which I think sort of sums it up in a way, was, which was not novelty but coherence, trying to bring some coherence to it because it's a very complex world and trying to give people and ourselves the confidence to say actually you can navigate through it and here are some, here are some ways to maybe start to think about that and how that how that might work for you and your population and the leaders and the organisations and the sectors in your part of the world. Mm. Mm. And how does it differ to population health management? So my personal view is that population health management is a tool. Yeah. So as I understand it, sort of the, and again, it's, it's been around forever, so it's not new in a way. The analysis of information and data risk stratification segmentation and then applying that knowledge to improving the health of specific populations is a really important part of a general population health approach but it's not the be all and end all it's mm -hmm. a tool in the toolbox alongside many other things including government policy what you do on taxation uh how you incentivize uh, different sectors to work together, all sorts of stuff in that sort of toolbox. So I'd say it's a very important tool, but one amongst many. Yeah, OK. And if you were going to um, take away a few key messages from the vision for population health, what do you think those key messages would be? We've obviously got coherence rather than novelty is the sort yeah. of key thing running through it. But I think for me, I guess there are four, and we could have chosen slightly different words or slightly different um, ways of thinking, but I do think the coherence bit is critical. And I guess we nailed our colours to four particular pillars of population health. One is the wider determinants of health, and um, which your audience will, I'm sure, will know what that, that means, although there's all sorts of debate about that. Um, uh, how's it, wider policies, social policies in particular, that affect people's health, housing, transport, spatial planning, all those things, economic development, as a core pillar of population health. Our behaviours um, as individuals... Um, uh, part of that, whether we smoke, whether we drink, to what extent, how they cluster in populations, communities themselves, and I think really there's been a really welcome um, re-engagement. I think in the health policy with the role of communities in health in lots of different ways. Pri lots of re lots of reason for that. A lot of the reasons because we're seeing that happen on the ground at local areas. So it's not necessarily led by national policymakers, but the role of communities and particularly as assets and in their own health. 
And finally, the thing that's maybe most associated with us, uh, in, at least in the last 10 years or so, uh, the role of an integrated health and care system. And I guess we see getting all of those bits right in a local place or a national place or a regional place is really critical. And the two things to take away from that really to me is, is, the, is, is getting the balance between those four factors right. And we know certainly the funding balance isn't right nationally between those four factors. And then the second bit, which is the coherence bit, is actually, and this is what we do when we talk about this in local areas in particular, is to challenge local areas saying, these are the, if these are the four pillars of population health, and you can choose yours, and people have a slight adaptation because it makes sense for them to adapt it slightly, what is going on where those overlap? Are you looking at these things completely separately? And that's where some, not all, but some of the academic world will say, well, actually, the answer is always the wider term of health, the answer is always behaviours, etc. And I guess the reality is people's lives, your life, my life, is determined where those things intersect. And all we're, all we're really doing with our vision for population health is trying to create a framework to help people to realise that and identify what they are doing in their local areas at, the, at those joins, at those intersection points. Mm-hmm. And, and at its simplest, that's all it is. There's lots of words around it. There's lots of recommendations which we think will help people to do that, which is why I say it's not novelty. There's nothing new in that, but it's trying to help people bring a coherence to that. What does that mean in their local area? And if, if a local area can't identify what's going on at the gaps, then that's that's why not? Because yeah, that's I really a question, like- that's a challenge back to say you really should know that otherwise you're not really making the most of the assets whatever they are whatever the money in your place Mm. i really like the fact that you're going into local areas and sort Mm. of seeing how this works because i think i think some health professionals or people working in local areas may feel that this is all well and good sort of from the ivory tower of the king's fund (laughs) and um but what's actually happening um on the ground and sort of how can we actually apply these Four pillars and yeah. that that does make sense so what does that actually look like in reality great well well again what it's pleasing is that people have, have approached us to say can you some people obviously not everybody would we wouldn't expect them to um so some people have approached to say actually this is a really helpful framework for us and we're doing a particular piece of work and that they've all used it slightly differently which is which shows i guess its flexibility hopefully um, so, for example, we've been to a sort of a city of about 300,000, 350,000 people who are looking at their health and well-being strategy, and they've used it particularly to focus on the community aspect, the engagement with the community, the, the, the role of communities as, as assets, and how that connects to, in particular, to uh, health behaviours, to the wider determinants of health, and to an integrated health and care system. And in a way, mapped that overlap, what does it look like are we doing enough? Are we doing the right stuff? And then, and then re, then cast it uh, as part of their health and well-being strategy. And they, they, what they say is they found it really, really useful to help do that. It's created buy-in, and it's created, I say, that connection, that sense of one place, uh, and the frameworks have been useful for that. So that's been really pleasing. Some areas, so integrated health and care systems, obviously a very health perspective, health care perspective in particular, they've fleshed that out more around public service reform more broadly and sort of seen it through a, a broader lens. And you could argue, actually, that's, that's including some of the wider determinants. It doesn't really matter. They still see it as a way to bring all the, these pillars together in their place, which is why, the, which is why I think it's been particularly particularly demand for it and it's been found to be useful locally because it's place based i think it's 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 had that resonance and helped people work through what that might look like there's no magic to it 
Um, so that, I think that's pleasing for me that it's not just sat in the ivory tower, either in, uh, you know in our document or being picked up by some policy decision maker somewhere in in, in national government. Having said that, um, I think uh, what, there's a really fascinating all-party parliamentary group on longevity at the moment quite new but really trying to look behind and people may not be aware of this but the government has a a a grand i think it's called the grand aging strategy as part of the industrial strategy trying what would it take to increase healthy life expectancy by additional five years by 2035 i think um and also narrow the gap between the, the poorest and the wealthiest so a health inequalities element to that and frankly, I don't think the government's necessarily done a lot of thinking on that, actually doing that, but the APPG on longevity is, and they picked up the framework as, again, one way to help help um, help them think that through, as well as obviously all the specifics mm. that they'll be thinking about. And in particular, to recognise that actually not all of this stuff happens nationally. The national is a really big context, a really big driver, particularly on funding and some of the rules around the system. But actually, what really makes a difference is what's happening locally. So, so we've been really pleased that it's been seen to have value, but to be adapt, adaptable and flexible enough to make sense in different places. And I think it's been picked up in other places which we're not aware of as, as well. I'm, I'm sure over time we'll become more aware of um, how it's being used elsewhere. Hmm. Have you had any negative reactions to it? Yes. There's always a reaction like, I'm not in it, so <laughs> why don't you say more about this, which I think is always the case. Yeah. I think some people would have liked us to have unpacked the bit on why the determinants more, and I think we could have done that, but then this piece was very much... It's still 60 pages, so it's not short, but it, it, as many pieces of work, it was twice as long six weeks before it was published, and so there's a lot of detail in it, which we'll be coming back to over the next year. So perhaps there could have been more detail on specific areas, particularly around the wider determinants of health, because obviously we know it's so critical and important. Um, I think some said this is a very uh, King's Fundy thing, in a, and that can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on your perspective, particularly around the integrated health and care system. So some people say that's nowhere near as important as you've presented it. There's something about just the size of the circles. I mean, the critical thing is people have read it and have responded to it and it's created a reaction. So if nobody had thought it wasn't uh, perfect, you know, then uh, it means that no one's read it. So um, It's good to create a discussion around these things, isn't it? Exactly. And, yeah. it, and I think it, hopefully what it does is it it's also part of, lo- obviously, lots of other people's work. We've written a piece here trying to get underneath and tell the story of what's been happening in Wigan but there are many other places where similar things are happening so I think it's part of a a larger selection of work from other other places too so I I wouldn't say it sits on its own indeed some of the places we've talked to have seen sort of you know Michael Marmot's Fair Society Healthy Lives position and recommendations and the Marmot City agenda actually been very complementary to this so they sit alongside. And I think that's also pleasing that we're not claiming that this, again, not novelty but coherence is the, yeah. is the strap line. Yeah. Um, I, I think, David, I'd be silly having um, met you on the Leadership for Population Health course to not mention leadership. So I'm going to ask you yeah. about leadership. Um, population health is complex and really difficult to achieve. We've already touched on 
complexity and coherence and creating that balance, which is really hard. Um, I know it's a big topic, but briefly, what sort of leadership needs to happen to achieve this? It's a huge topic, so there's no simple answer to that. And, and um, there are five key things, and I've forgotten all of them, um, that we talk about from the evidence about leadership in these really complex, you know, as Harry Rutter would say, complex adaptive systems. But I think some of the aspects are... Obviously, you need to call on some expertise. So leaders need to be able to call on the right expertise to help them navigate the evidence around the complexity. That's part of leadership. I think the reason we, one reason we called it population health, because uh, I think it's actually, my view is actually it's a really, uh, again, not a novel, but a really broad, um, in a way, public health approach to health you could argue and we and it we've called it population health for several reasons one is around leadership one is to say that actually pu- public health expertise is really critical locally and nationally but that expertise cannot do it all itself and shouldn't do it all itself so we're trying to broaden out the responsibility for population health and again the framework is a one way to do that um i think th- Looking back to the pillars, actually, the recognition that whatever wherever you are as a leader, you have you have a role in this, but also you will not get to the objectives of population without working with other leaders in other sectors or other places or with other other lenses, other ways of thinking about it. So, without coining a phrase, it's sort of it's really pointed towards much more collaborative leadership. But then, particularly at place level, you need to be really bought into your own vision about what you want to achieve and what is the population health changes that you want to see. And again, hopefully, the framework helps coalesce in a way helps coalesce the leaders, the existing leaders in place, and also looking for others, particularly in the communities themselves. Um, and then finally, I guess, and there's, there's so there's, there's more in in the in the in the publication itself. But finally. I think from a, a, a related piece of what we did on cities and population, particularly what's, what's, what can we learn from international cities, and we'd love to do a piece on what can we learn from cities here, is having some coordination function at place-based level. Now, that we're agnostic on where that could be. In some places, that might be an ICS. It could be the Health and Wellbeing Board. It could be another structure. Um, but having some coordination to pull to pull the local vision for population health together, whatever that may be, is really critical. And having the resource to do that, because this does require, by definition, a lot of coordination um, to to get this right. So I'd say, um, I I guess that's the characteristics of a place that supports their leaders to do this. And therefore, you need the leadership to recognise that that other leaders need that support. And that might look different in different places. Yeah, Yeah. well, it's going to. Of course it will. Um, yeah. So I'm I'm rather worried, not worried, I'm, I am worried about, you know, if the answer from the, I guess, the NHS side of the house is this all gets led through local ICSs, we're rolling them all out and they do population health and they're leaders, I don't think it's going to work. That's going to work in some places, but I, I think the maturity that we need from NHS England on this is to actually accept that there are many other leaders where this could sit in local places and local authorities are clearly a key part of that given that the, actually they are probably closest to those four pillars of population health or at least three of them than the NHS is so I think it'll be really interesting to see how how mature our um, particularly NHS and local authority relationships are around population health and where they sit that's yeah. not to say ICS haven't got a critical role in this of course they have but I would not want to see the answer for all leadership emanating from ICSs.
Yeah. Okay. Okay. And we, we've we've touched a bit on finance earlier on, mm-hmm. um, but I did want to just ask you what you'd recommend to local areas trying to achieve this on a sh- on a shoestring. Can you do population health on a shoestring? Well, I think actually local areas haven't got. There's not a shoestring. The marginal bits finding the finding the marginal bits is not. But if you look at no matter what your circumstances, you can do better. Um, because there are immense assets and um, there's amount, immense money flows going into local areas from all sorts of sources. So, so I don't think it is a shoestring. It means, well, but that, that means you've got immense resources at your at your fingertips. How you direct them, how you uh, support them, how you bring that coherence to what you've already got. That's not to say that actually more money, in particular, would be helpful. More workforce resources would be helpful and we have a particular strong line particularly on public health grant jointly with the health foundation which is also helpful i hope but i don't think it is a shoestring but look at the look at the resources in totality because if if you if we think about this as a marginal thing to do then you'll never find the marginal amount of money but if you think of this as what is the purpose of all of the resources that we have to bear including in communities themselves then you will find that actually it is immense. So there is bringing that mindset to it too. I get that, but there's the there's a challenge coming here, isn't there? Local authority spending and well, I don't know, um, prevention. Let's say an example is prevention. Um, money put in, into prevention has sort of cut by almost a quarter over the last few years. It That's is per a head. Huge amount, um, it is. I agree. So I think we have to plug some of those gaps. And and I guess I think we've been stronger ourselves as an institution, not just me, in in I, not not moving on from the NHS funding uh, issues, but but. Um, saying that social care in particular and public health have been the things, the soft underbelly, and we know that's in, uh, we've seen that in specific services uh, and more broadly. So we do argue for more money, but there is still there are still resources there. And some areas, uh, I mean, there are some areas uh, at the moment, which is, I think is, re- again, really fascinating, are looking at their... A, the public health grant is still... It's really important, but it's still a, a small proportion of local government expenditure. Uh, and local government expenditure has dropped, I know, through the floor compared to lo- yeah. NHS expenditure. But there are still there's still an enormous amount of resources in some way um, still in systems. So I guess the duty is, there are two things. One is to try and influence and change that nationally. But within within the current circumstances is to rethink how we look at this i think i think one of the things that i would be really keen and again some of the local areas are already looking at this but i think also this is where we do need a national lead is there was a recent publication from sipfa which is the chartered institute for public finance and accountancy were really important in this because they are the guys who, who um you know run run all the account all the finance in 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 local government and national government across sectors jointly with public health england to start to talk about do we need to set some sort of prevention spend target nationally guidance nationally now that in and of itself won't change things but actually and also better identify what prevent preventive spend is because we actually we actually haven't got as unless we really identify it we can't protect it and if we and, and we also can't increase it but but we would i personally and the fund would support some of those not they're not they're not short-term fixes but just trying to change the mindset around prevention because as you know you know uh, the incentives are not right in the system for prevention 
um, even when it is value for money, and we know much of it is value for money. So I'm not belittling it. I just think that there is more that can be done, whatever the whatever the resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the uh, the really fascinating work on anchor institutions is an example. Mm-hmm. Both seeing the NHS as an anchor institution, but also other local anchor institutions. I was reading um, some stuff around the Preston model yesterday about how you can really use that huge economic power in public institutions funding and employment practices um, to be beneficial to local residents including with a big focus on their health getting them into work helping them progress in their skills etc and that's what you mean by an anchor institution isn't it Yes, I guess sort of those those large, relatively large institutions that are, uh, and they're called anchor institutions, because, and it's a phrase from the US, um, because they are ones that are not su- that are not subject to global capital flight, so they're not going to, you know, as soon as the tax regime changes, they're not going to disappear somewhere else. So they are do tend to be public institutions, universities, the healthcare sector, um, all sorts of other examples. But what given that they are anchored in place and they actually, what are their duties to people in that place and the environment around them? Now, I w- we would not advocate moving to the NH- to the American healthcare system, just to knock that one on the head. But there are some interesting things because of their, because of the setup of the American healthcare system. Some, we can learn from them. Uh, some healthcare institutions in the US are directly investing in housing, for instance. They're saying, actually, we know housing quality is really critical let's spend some of our money on improving the health of our residents through housing. Now, there's a question about, is that possible here? Partly because of our system. But, I mean, so actually being really creative in in how we spend money across public services for health is more than treating people and more than spending money on treating people through the NHS. Mm. And the NHS has a role in that. It's 10% or so of GDP. It's, It's a massive lever for economic change and in local communities. Yeah, and that fits in really nicely with the vision in terms of looking looking through other lenses and yeah. learning from a lot of other people. I want to take, we've just been talking about prevention a little bit, and I want to take you back to that. So I know the Health Secretary has got prevention as one of his key areas, and we now have the Prevention Green Paper, um, which was released, has released in the last couple of weeks. I know you've written about this, and I know you'd hope that there would be more support for local government's role in public health. What do you think about that? I think it is a bit of a missed opportunity. In a way, looking back, I don't know whether you recall, before Christmas, there's a prevention is better than care paper. And I think, in a way, if we'd... There's something about the the, the, the narrative, the setup, how how things are talked about in the in the in the in, in the green paper and the messages in that. So prevention is better than care was an interesting piece of work because it was a story, a narrative. Really, there were no no policy commitments or anything in it, so it's a very strange thing in a way. And people have criticised the including us, the narrative, but it was quite a good narrative. I think it could have said more about poverty uh, and various other things, but it was quite a thoughtful narrative. Then things stopped, and then we've got a green paper. And the green paper, in a way, has reverted to type. Lots of little initiatives, each of which on their own you couldn't disagree with, but there's no really grand vision. There's no sense of where things are going. And I think, in a way, if they sort of kept the narrative from the first go at this and then and then attached some, some of these specifics to the second, it probably would have been a better uh, piece of work overall. I was disappointed about there wasn't really much for local government. We're expecting an awful lot from local government. And as you rightly say, in very straightened circumstances and 
what is in it for local government? There's not much. I'm hoping that in the consultation and response there will be more, and I hope local government responds and the government responds to local government on this, and we will obviously be putting it in our response. I think the narrative is not as, as focused around assets, and again, as is happening locally. So I guess my take is overall that all the innovation in public health and population health is actually happening locally. So we need to be much more interested in that and in terms of our, our role as an organisation, actually supportive of that and also help tell the stories. And that's where, uh, for instance, the piece on Wigan, I think, has been helpful for, for some people. Not to replicate what Wigan's done, because, again, Wigan's a very unique place. But to help say it is possible. So I think we've actually got some really good legislation around health inequalities and around health and linked things. But it would have been great to have seen the government say, actually, this is what, what it might look like if you particularly locally, if you use this legislation to its maximum. So we have the Social Value Act, for instance, which is potentially really powerful. We have the Inequalities Duty in the Health and Social Care Act, which no one's remembered and people have forgotten about. We've got the, the broader duties on local government and freedoms on local government to actually, unless they do something which is tax raising or is illegal, they can actually do lots of stuff around well-being for instance that's another word that's important here so i think actually it would have been great to have seen something from government saying actually look at this look at the existing legislation we've got this is how you can use it this is what you can this is the possibility and we didn't see that two quick things that might might be great um, but they are re-announcements. That's the other thing. There's a sense of that we're re-announcing. There were lots of leaks in the week before the Green Paper. So there was a sense of there was a bit of a dampness to it, a damp square, because we'd seen what was coming. So there, there have been some movements on childhood obesity. Um, there's a commitment, a recommitment to a smoke-free society. If we finally get there, that'd be amazing. But again, it's like, well, what is government going to do to help get us there? What what are the green, What's the Green Paper really going to move us forward? And the government says in its tobacco control plan, that half of health, whether you believe it or not, is another question, but half of health inequalities in life expectancy are due to tobacco. If the government really believes that, what is it really going to do? And we don't, so we've seen a commitment to smoke free, but could have gone a lot further. And finally, this, this curious thing, you know, the, the, the chief medical officer's health index. So uh, interesting to see what that leads. If, if it really does mean that health or some form of index on health is equivalent to GDP in government decision-making at some point in the future, then all of my whinges about the Green Paper would have been worthwhile. So forget <laughs> my whinges. If that, that lands and is nailed and really has an impact, then brilliant. Um, we'll see. OK, amazing. I'm really interested, David, where the King's Fund kind of sits in all of this, because there's so much politics in all of this and influence. And yeah. I, I wonder, from your perspective, what whether you feel like you can have an influence and how yeah. how you've got to kind of be careful to sort of, I don't know, bang and health inequalities drum, that sort of thing. Do you ever find that tricky? We're not aligned when we take that seriously. So when we do our periodic what do people think of us stuff, we're equally hated by left and right, which is a good place to be, probably for different reasons, but equally hated, but also equally listened to. So I think I think for us... To have influence, we've got to be evidence-informed. I don't say evidence-based, so we're not an academic institution. As an institution, I think we straddle the boundary, sometimes uncomfortably, between evidence, between policy, both writing and influencing, and between practice. And when we get it right, we can be quite influential because of that, because that's what we call on. 
And increasingly, we're also working much more, which is great, much more closely with patients and the public too in our work. In, um, and but we need to do better at that. Um, so I think we're a trusted commentator nationally. And we, so we have influence through the media. So the media comes to us and asks our opinion, which is an incredible privilege. And we're seen to be not politically aligned. And I, and I honestly think we are not politically... Whatever our personal views are as an institution, we are not politically aligned because that's really critical to us, big P, politically aligned, that we're seen to be an honest broker and we give our view. And I think since I've been here, I think our role has developed, particularly in sense-making, because everything is so complex... And there are multiple voices, there are multiple channels, multiple bits of media, there's so many different places to get information, which in that whole is a good thing, but therefore you need some trusted brands, so to speak, to help you make sense of it. And while not everybody will agree with what we say, I think many people listen to what we say. Mm. And so I think our role is influence rather than power, so to speak. And that applies nationally and locally, but I think also we have a role in... Um, representing the national at the local level and representing the local at the national level to the extent that we can um, and, and bringing perspectives and sharing perspectives in and sharing our voice with others and I'd love to do I mean, it comes on to our future strategy but I'd lo- I think we should do more of that mm. not not work just, just within ourselves but work much more closely with others than we probably do at the moment yeah um, does that all sound rather pious? no <laughs> it's really interesting do you ever just write something and just worry that it's just going to land really badly. I do sometimes have, I mean, you know, obviously work closely with Greg Fell, so anyone listening, follow his stuff, because he writes, there's there's a freshness to some of some people's, I mean, I'm thinking particularly about my work, I think some people can, can react more quickly. So to be honest, we do, we have quite a strict editorial process here. Mm. So... Um, it's not so much the ideas, it's sometimes the way that we phrase them, I think. Um, so, yeah, sometimes personally I'd wish to dash something off, like, I think this is our... You know, and sometimes we do say that, to be, to be honest. Um, but I think we've also, we've also always got to be reflective because, because um, protecting our... Protecting, but we are really aware that we have a really privileged position and what we don't want to do is put that in... in in, in jeopardy mm. um, because that because I do think we I do think we are useful regardless of what you think of what we say I think we are we are useful in the system mm. and is there anything that kind of makes you lose sleep at night deadlines mm. um, yeah. well it, well no so more, more seriously than that um, I do think going back to what we said at the start you know the sense of I guess both two things. One is inequalities is such a critical, and hopefully we will be saying more about this as, as a fund, not just as um, not just several of us in the future. I think inequalities is such a critical issue in our society that we should lose sleep on that. But I'm also an optimist. You know, I think we do know a lot of what we can do, and everybody can do something. So. It, 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 it is not too big to bite off. It is not impossible to to do something about inequalities, and so that's what keeps me. I guess that's what keeps me awake as well as as well as worrying about it. That it's mm. possible to do something. Mm. I think the thing that um, worries me is this complexity of it all. And I know that health inequalities have been persistent um, yeah. and very difficult to 
shift. What do you think the future looks like? Um, sometimes it would feel like we're um, painting quite a depressing picture. Um, well, I think, I mean, you, I think you might ask me, I might say it now, you ask me about a book that I might recommend. So on this, I'd, I'd, I'd recommend The Great Escape by Angus Deaton, who's a professor in the US and he's, he's um, I think, Scottish heritage. So I think he's got an interesting perspective on US, UK. And he's been quite well known recently for his work uh, with a colleague on the uh, opioid, opioid epidemic in the States, which is which is depressing. Um, but he's written this book called The Great Escape, which basically sets out this extraordinary progress that has been made, particularly in developed countries like our own, but also increasing developing what we call developing countries in terms of a first child mortality Secondly, over the course of the 20th century, despite two world wars, despite flu ep- millions of people dying in flu epidemics, about life expectancy and about the lives that we lead. And so I think we always need to keep our eye on inequalities, and that, that, but that can lead to inequalities. So, so we have to keep our eye on making sure that the, the gains that we have had actually do uh, accrue to the, to the population as a whole, not just those at the top. So that's the challenge in that. But I would read. I would urge anyone to read that, both for the challenge. I don't always agree with what he says, but actually just putting everything in some form of context. I'd also say on inequalities that we've we've done it previously. So this is the point about not forgetting the past. And I know you've talked to Chris Bentley in particular about we. There was a health inequalities strategy, um, 1997 to 2010. I think yeah. one policy. We need another one because it is complex, but it is possible. It is doable. We learned a lot in that time and we've learned a lot since i know michael marmot has been commissioned by the health foundation to update his work so we have a huge amount of knowledge and it's accruing and improving all the time so i am optimistic that we can do this um uh, so it's not impossible but if we don't pay attention and if we think it's too big and we think it's just uh, going to happen then it will just happen because we have to be focused on it yeah um okay and what about the statistics like life expectancy and things what do you see the next 10 20 years i honestly don't know i mean there's a lot of debate about what's happening on life expectancy in particular the stalling in life expectancy Mm -hmm. and in some parts of the country and for some groups going backwards but not all parts of the country or all groups um it's really tricky to understand what's going on. I think our particular take on it, and my colleague Vina Raleigh is, is, is really um, the expert on this here at least, is that there is something going on in the UK, but there is also something going on internationally. So it's not just the UK that's experiencing some of this. It's probably experiencing it to a greater degree. And there's something about, is that something about our policies, our context, our demography? And the answer is probably yes, yes and yes. But exactly what the mix is, is really tricky. Veen is going to be doing some work on the contribution of cardiovascular disease to this. And it's not just disease-based, clearly. It's also policy-based, social policy, the role of austerity, mm-hmm. how that's played out. Frankly, we still don't fully understand what's going on. I think what's good is that actually there's... But it's happened too late. There's actually some focus on this now it should have happened earlier i think um particularly from government but there is focus on this now but it's very tricky for me sitting here to say the answers are a b c and d when yeah when we don't really know exactly what's happening now it's difficult to say what's going on in (laughs) 10 to 20 years time yeah completely okay um 
so Dave, we've talked a little bit about your working life, and I want—I always like to just talk to you a little bit about what you do to relax and what you do just yeah. to switch off. Um, I've seen on Twitter that you um, entered a few vegetables into yes. your local show. Is that one of your particular hobbies? Uh, it turned <laughs> out to be. It was never planned. I don't know whether people know. So this point about jack of all trades, master of none, I did a really interesting piece. So I was always really interested in... I'm turning it into a work question now, aren't I? But yeah. I was always interested in connection between green space and health. And I had the opportunity to do a piece of work actually on gardens in particular, gardening and health, which is a piece of work I never thought I'd be doing. And that allowed me to explore the broader relationship in green spaces and health. So I guess, yes, I do. I'm very, I have a bit of a vegetable patch. And so I go and sit in the garden. It's all very exciting. And um, yeah, I grow some vegetables. I used to go surfing quite a lot in the old days. I'd love to do that a bit more. Um, so I do relax, but I do, I do. Um, and I can switch off. That's great too. Um, but it, but this is for me. This is more than a job. It is sort of you know. I'm very fortunate that it's something I'm really committed to. It is more than a job. It sort of is a sort of vocation as well. Yeah. Okay. You have already answered one of my last questions. So I always ask your one book. Um, there are was, many others. Was that your book that you wanted to tell us about? It probably is, but there's a yeah. long list of them, and so there's lots of others. So at Christmas time, if anyone follows me on Twitter, I'll tweet three or four books that I said, these are four books I've enjoyed during the year. Okay, oh, fantastic. So yeah. we look forward to them as well. Um, and then my last question is always the genie question. So if you could have sort of one wish to improve health inequalities, what would that be? I think it goes back to what I've already said. I think I th- it is complex. You, we There's lots of stuff we can do, So and that's the optimism bit of me. But we really do need a national, a really true national strategy to draw that together. I think, uh, and I could be seen as an old Stalinist here. We, I think we do need some form of target. Maybe the, the um, CMO ONS Health Index might be that to help draw stuff together. So what we haven't talked about much is my work in the Department of Health. And having a target really does galvanise. It doesn't mean that you have to cascade it and say, you know, Sheffield, you've got to deliver a, this, this amount. But it does help galvanise around such a complex issue. And part of that should be saying the legislation means this, this is what it means, this is what is possible. And I think it's possible to do that. So the one single thing at the moment in terms of instrumental thing, is to have another really serious health inequalities national policy, which makes sense locally. Mm, fantastic. Um, actually, I was talking to Chris Bentley about this, and um, I think having that target for 2010, um, even though it didn't all quite go to plan with the Health Inequalities National Support Team, I think having that target was really, really beneficial and actually, I think that's something that could yeah. be really beneficial from a national perspective. Absolutely. Having a target um, and, and a policy, as you say. Yeah. And, yeah. and to be, you know, some of the resources that, I mean, I'm sure Chris talked about this, some of the, some of the ideas, the thinking, the resources that were developed them are, are, are coming back into the system. The challenge is, is that it's harder to pull a lever from the, from the centre now um, to say, do this, this and this. Mm. So there are some benefits to that and also some weaknesses to having strong central levers. So the way that we do it, the way that it's delivered will need to be different. But I, I, I agree with Chris on this. I, I, that's mm. my personal view too. 
David, thank you so much for our chat today. We're finishing on an optimistic note, I feel. Um, I haven't really had much of a chance to really sit down and chat to you (laughs) so far on the Leadership for Population Health course, so it's been really good to sit down and chat to you today. I always enjoy hearing about the Vision for Population Health, and it was good to chat to you about that and hear really about your role in the King's Fund and how you see it as a luxury and a privilege. It's a privilege, yeah. um, Which... uh, I think is amazing. Really like following the work that you're doing. So thank you very much. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I'll speak to you soon. Take care. Take care. Thank you all for listening. You will be able to find further episodes on the Fair Health website. If you haven't been on there already, please do check this out at www.fairhealth.org.uk. It is a fantastic educational resource. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us. If you have ideas, would like to talk to us, or even if you have a suggestion of someone we could interview for an episode, please do get in touch via Twitter, at FairHealthUK or at RMSteam. It would be great to hear from you. I'm really looking forward to you joining us next time on our journey to finding fair health.